In his first hour today, Dr. Anna Lemke decodes the science of desire and explains how to find balance in this modern age of hyperindulgence in her New York Times bestselling book, Dopamine Nation. I am pleased to welcome Dr. Lemke to this program. Doc, how are you today? I'm doing well. It's good to have you on the program. <clears throat> Excuse me. Good to have you on. Thank you for your time. Glad we have an hour to uh, to unpack this. We'll get to politics and all the more, as I said uh, later in this program. We wanted to start uh, with you today in this first hour. Talking about um, our hyperindulgence, as I said a moment ago, and all that you lay out in this best-selling book that everybody has read and uh, is talking about dopamine nation. Let me, let me start with this broad question. Uh, when you use the phrase hyperindulgence, unpack that for me. What that's essentially referring to is the ways in which our modern ecosystem has made us all vulnerable to the problem of addiction mm. because almost every human behavior has become drugified in some way, turned into a drug, made more potent, more reinforcing, more accessible. We have drugs that never existed before, like video games, social media, online gambling, online pornography. Um, food has become a drug with the addition of salt, fat, sugar, flavorants. So wherever we turn, uh, there's something that we can consume or do to immediately change the way we feel which releases dopamine, our pleasure neurotransmitter, all of which then has the potential for addiction. Mm, there's your foundation. Um, it's going to be a great hour. Uh, we are all uh, subject, uh, given the ecosystems that we operate in, all subject now more than ever to being more vulnerable to all kinds of addictions. What does that mean? What does it mean particularly for people of color? Um, what does it mean for our country that every one of us these days, now more than ever, is vulnerable to all kinds of addictions. Uh, just getting started with Dr. Anna Lemke on Tavis Smiley. From the Merck Park with love, love this love. is Tavis Smiley. Smart talk for curious people just like you. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Smiley. Tavis Smiley, Dr. Anna Lemke, who is author of the New York Times bestselling text, A Dopamine Nation which gets at how uh, we are now more vulnerable to addiction than ever before. Uh, Dr. Lemke, let me ask a few more broad questions, and then we'll narrow as we move through the hour. Um, when did this turn? I, I, I assume it's like a, like an ocean liner. It didn't happen overnight like a bicycle, but like an ocean liner, it turned. But when and how did we make this turn in this country um, to, uh, to all of these, um, uh, these uh, addictions uh, that releases dopamine. We'll talk about that in a moment. But w when did we turn in this country to being so vulnerable, all of us, to so many different addictions? How'd that happen? I, yeah, great question. I think there are two major inflection points. Mm -hmm. The first is approximately 200 or 300 years ago with the Industrial Revolution when the application of science to technology allowed us to create machines to mass-produce uh, the various goods that we like to consume and to ship those all over the world. So just as an example, in the 1880s, the cigarette rolling machine was invented, and uh, people who made and sold cigarettes were able to go from uh, producing, uh, you know, four cigarettes in an hour to producing hundreds of cigarettes in mere minutes, mm -hmm. which then expanded the supply of cigarettes, which then expanded the population exposed to cigarettes, and uh, with that, we had many more people addicted to cigarettes and to nicotine products more broadly. Mm. The second major inflection point was really the advent of the Internet, and especially the Internet plus our 
portable devices, our smartphones in the early 2000s, around 2007 or 8, when all of a sudden we had 24-7 portable digital access to all of the digital drugs that in and of themselves are highly reinforcing. So I think those are the, the really the two main inflection points that led to this kind of dopamine overloaded world. I love your phraseology, um, <laughs> that, that phrase, digital drugs. I, I assume, obviously, given your invocation, your invoking of the word, that that you believe that, that these that that, that the Internet uh, is, a, is a drug of sorts. It's, it's a digital drug. Absolutely. And I think it's important to just emphasize, I'm not saying it's all bad. Sure. Uh, you know, these are, these are powerful tools, but we must acknowledge that they're also potent drugs. Um, and, you know, when we use them as powerful tools, it's great, but when we are using them to change the way they, we, we feel um, or to avoid dealing with problems that we need to deal with, then, then really we're using them as a drug, and that's, that's very concerning. And then we're also, it's also a drug we're giving to our children, right? I mean, we would never imagine giving our six-year-old a pack of cigarettes, and yet, you know, we give six-year-olds iPads all the time. Mm. Um, to, to your to your point, um, uh, and and more 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 uh, more to your to your research, what happens when we digest? Uh, what's the what's the end game? The end result uh, of our digesting uh, uh, these digital drugs uh, in the way that we are? Yeah, great question. So, what happens um, when we um, digest or ingest uh, an intoxicant, a digital drug, or, or really any drug? Mm-hmm is that we released uh, high levels of dopamine, which is our reward chemical in the brain, uh, in a specific part of the brain called the reward circuitry. Um, And as soon as we do that, you know, that's what makes us feel good. But the problem is that um, our brains really weren't evolved for these sudden increased spikes of dopamine. So immediately our brain tries to compensate by downregulating our dopamine production and transmission, not just to baseline levels, but actually below baseline into a dopamine deficit state. And that dopamine deficit state is the state of intense craving or wanting to do that thing or eat that thing or smoke that thing or drink that thing again. And if we continue to do that over days to weeks to months to years, we essentially end up in a chronic dopamine deficit state, which is really the same thing as a clinical depression or a clinical anxiety. We're anxious, we're depressed, we can't sleep. All we can think of is getting that drug, using that drug, Mm -hmm. and we do that then to the exclusion of other healthier things, and we tend then also not to see the true consequences of our use. We're blind to it. Mm-hmm. Um, let me just back up for a second. This is this is getting rich here, and I want to stay. Uh, I want to follow you and stay with you. But let me just back up um, and ask this uh, question that I could have um, used uh, or offered at the at the very beginning of our conversation, but it fits in nicely now. And that is, um, tell me more about dopamine. Uh, what I'm really curious about is uh, why our creator put dopamine in our brains. Why why do we have it? What's its purpose? Um, tell me more about it, dopamine. Yeah, I love it. Great question. So again, dopamine is a chemical that we make in our brain, and it's fundamental for survival. So over Mm. millions of years of evolution, um, we have evolved to reflexively approach pleasure and avoid pain, and that is what has kept us alive in a world of scarcity and ever-present danger. Dopamine is the chemical that gets released when we encounter something that is important for survival, food, clothing, shelter, finding a mate. That all releases dopamine in the brain. It feels good. 
then we want to do it again and again. And that makes perfect sense in a world where these these rewards and these resources are very difficult to find and very scarce. We have to do a lot of work, walk tens of kilometers every day just to find a berry bush and a little bit of water. Um, So it's a great mechanism if after the release of dopamine in response to finding a reward, we go into a brief dopamine deficit state in in compensation Mm -hmm. because then we're craving again, right, and we're looking again, which we have to keep looking and working hard in order to survive this very scarce uh, environment that we've lived in, again, for most of humanity. The problem is that this mechanism that was so crucial for keeping us alive for millennia, for millions and millions of years, is terrible for an an environment that we live in now where we have drugs available at, you know, the swipe of our fingertips without making any effort or work to get them at all. Mm. Um, So... Again, I'm just I'm, I'm just uh, following you here. So you mentioned earlier a couple of times, in fact, dopamine deficits. Um, that suggested to me that there are times when it when it drops or it dips. Do we ever run out of dopamine? I mean, is it something that replenishes itself? How does that process work? Well, it's a great question. Um, there are certain diseases where dopamine gets completely depleted in parts of the brain. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, dopamine is not just important for pleasure and reward. It's also really important for movement. And it's probably no coincidence that the same neurotransmitter or chemical that's important for movement is important for reward because most organisms have to move and do work to get their reward, at least prior to the modern day. Mm-hmm. So Parkinson's disease, for example, is characterized by a depletion or an absence of dopamine in a different part of the brain called the substantia nigra. And, and so that's why people with Parkinson's will have to take dopamine in, in, a, in a supplement or a drug form in order to be able to keep moving. Um, and, and frankly, what happens in addiction is that we expose our brain's reward circuitry to this fire hose of dopamine such that the brain has to compensate by downregulating or going to low dopamine levels. So in a way, addiction is also a disease of depleted dopamine, which is kind of ironic, right? Because we're, we're bas- it's basically caused by too much dopamine coming from the outside. Hmm. I'm not sure if this question makes any sense, but let me try it. And if it doesn't, you can, you can uh, fix it for me and make me sound smart. Go for it. Go uh, for it. <laughs> make me sound smart and still give me a great answer. So we, we, we started out talking about how, and, and I get this, and I got a smart audience, they get it as well, that we live in an ecosystem these days where all of us um, are more vulnerable to all kinds of addictions because of, we're, because of the fact we live in a world where we're, bomb, we're bombarded with stuff all the time. So I get it. So we're always we're always being bombarded in this ecosystem that makes us all more vulnerable then to a variety of addictions. My question then is, are all addictions created equal? And I'm talking now about in the brain, because it seems to me that being addicted to a video game may not be or video game playing might not be the same as being addicted to heroin. So we're all more vulnerable to a variety of addictions. But are all are, are all addictions created equal, if that makes sense? Love it. Great question. So this is where we need to bring in this concept of drug of choice, which bring is it this idea. Yeah, which is this idea that what may release a lot of dopamine in your brain may not release a lot of dopamine in my brain mm. and vice versa. 
And if you think about this again from an evolutionary perspective, it makes sense that within a tribe you would want to have different things appeal to different people so that not everybody is going for the same berry bush, right? Some people really like berries. Some people really like meat. Some people are interested in finding mates so that collectively we get everything that we need. And, and so when you ask, you know, are video games, surely video games couldn't be as bad as heroin. Well, for the person for whom video games is their drug of choice, Video games is worse than heroin. Ah, that's what I was pushing for. I thought we might get there. Keep going, keep going, keep going. Yeah, so, and I think what's so important to realize now is that, you know, for millennia, since the beginning of recorded human history, well, we can find records of people getting addicted to alcohol, to opium, to all kinds of um, plant, you know, um, plant products that can cause intoxication. Um, but now, not only do we have more potent versions of those traditional drugs, but we have drugs that never existed before, which means that large segments of the population for whom traditional drugs were not their drug of choice are now going to be vulnerable to addiction because there are these drugs that really are their drug of choice. And I mean, without, you know, I talk about this in my book, it's always a little bit embarrassing to talk about, but I do it by way of example. I thought that I was relatively immune to the problem of addiction because the alcohol and drugs that I tried were never really very reinforcing for me. Mm-hmm. But it turns out I just hadn't yet met my drug of choice, which turned out to be romance novels. <laughs> and once, once I got a Kindle, yeah, I'm serious. I'm serious. It started with the Twilight Saga, right? And pretty soon, you know, a year and a half later, I was up at three in the morning reading Fifty Shades of Grey, which is, you know, just frankly erotica, mm-hmm. socially sanctioned pornography for women. And, <laughs> you know, that that's this classic trajectory, right? Over time, you need more of your drug. You need more potent versions. I got a Kindle. I became a chain reader as soon as I finished one romance novel. I'd get the other one. I was looking for free samples, which Amazon happily gives away, as any good drug dealer knows. That's how you, you know, widen your customer base. And it was kind of crazy. I mean, I got to the point where I was, like, reading romance novels in the 10 minutes between patients, right? Mm. And I was getting depressed. I was getting anxious. I was disinterested in other things that had given me pleasure or joy. And, And I'm an addiction doctor, and that all happened to me without my really even being aware of it. So my point is that the medium itself, the delivery itself, the drugification itself of all of these different things in life today means that we could all, you know, end up in this kind of compulsive overconsumptive state and not even realize it's happening. Mm. Um, This is getting rich, as we say around here. It's getting good. Um, When it comes to this notion of a drug of choice, is that random or is there something else that I'm missing about our bodies, about how we're created, that puts us in a certain tier or a certain space that makes us more vulnerable to a particular thing as our drug of choice? Or again, is that just random? Is it just random that your drug of choice is romance novels? Yeah, great question. I don't, you know, I don't think, I think part of it is just, frankly, biological. Right. Like, so if you have a biological parent or grandparent who was addicted to alcohol, you you are at increased risk of becoming an alcoholic yourself, even if raised outside of that alcohol-using home. Mm. So I think a piece of this is probably genetic, but you're absolutely right. There's probably a piece of it that is like epigenetic, right, or or from the way that we're raised. 
And also, never discount access. Some of this is just neighborhood, like whatever drug is available in your neighborhood Mm -hmm. is maybe the drug that you're going to get addicted to. So, for example... Just this is the example that comes to mind immediately for me. You know, there are um, there are certain religious groups, for example, um, that you know are uh, prescribed from drinking alcohol or using drugs. And what we see in those populations is there are sometimes there are higher rates of like sex and pornography addiction or mm-hmm. prescription opioid addiction because. Really, you know, the tendency toward addiction is endemic in the population. That's one of our vulnerabilities. So mm. if people don't have access to one drug, they're going to potentially channel that propensity, uh, you know, toward another drug. No, that, that resonates with me. Uh, this will get me in some trouble, but I grew up uh, and still belong to uh, a Pentecostal church. And uh, uh, for those who listen to you about the Pentecostal tradition, you get my point here. Uh, Dr. Lemke hits the nail on the head. In the Pentecostal tradition, all kind of things will send you to hell. Uh, certainly, <laughs> certainly, certainly, certainly drinking and drugs will send you straight to hell. Um, yeah. But I think of all the people that I grew up with in this Pentecostal tradition and all the things that we could not do, but I think right. of them, my friends, my even family members, Uh, And the drug of choice they eventually took because there were certain things that we could not do. So we're prohibited here, but it pushes you in other directions. It pushes you in other spaces. So, again, to your point, we're all vulnerable to a drug of choice. And some of that is environmental. I get it. What what I'm laughing at, though, on the inside, Dr. Lemke, is that I think what you're telling me is that somewhere way in your past, one of your great, great grandparents was a was a romance novel junkie. If it's biological. (laughs) <laughs> well, yes. So if we're going to look at the biological piece, you know, when it comes to romance novels, I really categorize romance novels, and frankly, I categorize sex addiction, compulsive masturbation, all of that, mm-hmm. as a, more likely to occur in people who are very attachment-oriented and people for whom innately relationships are really their drug of choice, right, mm-hmm. or, or really the thing that they... Um, greatly value or that's very reinforcing for them. Um, and I think, so I think that's right. So when, when you know, I look at my sort of, uh, you know, an ancestral inheritance, I, I probably genetically am a person who's a very, like, social attachment person, intimacy, close relationships. These are yeah. very important to me. Mm-hmm. And so it would be natural that, that something in that category no, would that also makes sense. be my, my yeah. drug of that, that makes sense. Um, when we come forward, I, I want to get to uh, whether or not there's a racial component to this. And I want to ask that question in part because while the Human Genome Project suggests that we are all basically the same, we do know that there's certain things biologically that black folk are more susceptible to. I'm thinking of stuff like sickle cell right now, sickle cell anemia. There are other things that black people find themselves more, uh, again, susceptible to. So I wonder where this dopamine nation is concerned, whether or not there is a racial component to it. We'll talk about that and more with Dr. Anna Lemke when we come forward discussing her book, Dopamine Nation, right now on Tavis Smiley. Unapologetically progressive. progressive. Unapologetically black. Black, black. You're tapped into Tavis Smiley. Tavis Smiley. Dot com. Let's get back to more of Tavis Smiley right now. So, Dr. Lemke, uh, let that ride, Miles. Let me tell you why we're playing this song. Um, I can see why your book is a New York Times bestseller. Let it ride, Miles. I can see why it's a New York Times bestseller because it has kicked up a serious conversation in this studio and in this building uh, where I sit right now. <laughs> About right. about our drug of choice and about dopamine. So I'm playing this song. All I do is win, win, win. 
because I asked some of my colleagues during that break what their drug of choice was. I ain't calling no names, but every one of them, <laughs> but every one of them said weed. Uh, that's number one. Yeah, right. So we'll come back right. to that. We'll come back to that in a second. They asked yeah. me, Tabish, what is your drug of choice? And I said, all I do is win, win, win. My drug of choice is winning. All I want to do is win. And every single yeah. thing I do, and when I win, that dopamine just opens up in me, and it makes me want to do my next project, my next thing. And I told the story of my friendship <clears throat> over the years with Michael Jordan, who I met when I was back in college. Even if you don't know Michael Jordan, but you read about Michael Jordan, you know that this Negro, all he wants to do is win. And I don't yeah. care if it's on a basketball court, on a golf course, uh, at a pool table. I one day, literally... I may have told this story before. One day when I was in college, Michael was trying out for the U.S. Olympic team back in 1984. And I was at Indiana University, and my coach, Bobby Knight, who just died not long ago, was uh, the, the coach at Indiana, was the coach of the Olympic team in 84. So the team was trying out uh, at Indiana University. Side note, Charles Barkley got cut. I'll leave that where it is. He got cut. Barkley didn't make the team. But, but, but Jordan, of course, uh, made the team. Jordan was so famous even then as a student in North Carolina that he couldn't stay in the hotel because everybody, all these fans were crowding out the hotel. So Jordan came out to hang with us because I lived with some basketball players who were playing for Bobby Knight on the IU team. So Jordan would hang out with us at our place to avoid all the crowds at the hotel. One day when they were not practicing, uh, Michael said, Travis, <laughs> Travis, he didn't know Travis, Travis, um, can you hang out with me today? You want to hang out? I said, sure. We went to the pool hall on the campus. I kid you not, Michael stayed on this pool table all day. He would let he he was so nice to you, he'd let you break first. And he would still talk trash to you, intimidate you, and take your money. I held Michael's money all day. It was a stack. <laughs> I held his money all day because all Michael does is win, win, win. So my question right. is, having said all of that, and I got a few questions born of the conversation I was having with my staff off air, whether or not winning is itself an addiction. Okay, perfect. So first of all, let me say, because many people do not know this, cannabis is a highly addictive drug and it can destroy lives. Winning is also a potential drug. And someone like Michael Jordan, is, who's an extraordinary athlete, obviously, I bet in an intimate conversation with you, or with me, or with anybody, he would be able to describe how over time he had to win more and more and have more and more success in order to get that feeling. Mm. And that eventually he couldn't get it anymore. Remember when he stopped playing basketball and switched over to golf? Ba uh, ba baseball, 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 baseball. Baseball, right, yeah, baseball, yeah, yeah, sure, right. Sure. He, I bet he was trying, you know, he was switching drugs. He was trying to get, get back that feeling again. Mm -hmm. And you'll see this in very many professional athletes, and also in highly successful people, like that amazing award, that championship. They finally get there, and it's empty for them. Mm -hmm. they, they don't feel it. And that's because they're looking for that dopamine hit that, that, that they just their body has now adapted neurologically to winning or whatever they're striving for. And they don't get that feeling after a while. And then, of course, the come down is huge because not only did they not get their dopamine hit, but, you know, what follows 
you know, highly reinforcing substances or behaviors is the come down and that state of craving. And, and I've, I, I've talked to so many professional athletes and successful people who will describe that, that same exact trajectory. Mm. So, yeah, it's, it's really tricky. No, it's fascinating. Your, your research is fascinating for me. Uh, her name is Anna Limke, Dr. Anna Limke. She's at Stanford. And her New York Times bestselling book is called Dopamine Nation. And it's a fascinating read about the ways in which in the current ecosystem that we reside, all of us, every one of us is vulnerable to addiction of some kind now more than ever. My mother's listening in Indiana, and I think her addiction might be uh, strawberry ice cream. I'm going to leave that alone for right now. Uh, I'll leave that alone. You're a, you're a brave man. You're a brave man. <laughs> but, 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 but here's my here's my other question, though. When I asked my colleagues what their drug of choice was, and they said weed, this, this is a strange question I'm going to ask anyway, because I think there's something here. Are they telling me that weed is their drug of choice amongst other drugs, or is or, or do we know that weed is in fact their drug of choice vis-a-vis dopamine? Does that make sense at all? Um, I'm not sure what you're asking. Try so, again. Yeah, let me try again. So, <clears throat> when when people say that weed is my is my drug of choice, well, are they really saying to me that weed is their drug of choice versus heroin, crack, or something else, mm-hmm. or, or 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 if you could get inside their body, inside their brain, um. Is, is uh, I'm having trouble getting this out because I, I know what I'm thinking, uh, and I'm trying to let me, let me pause on that. I'll, I'll come back to that because I want I want to frame it in a way I want to frame it in a way that I can get something out of you. And I, I'm not framing it the way I want to, so let me let me pause on that. Let me come back okay. to the other issue I want to raise. Though the other issue I want to raise though is whether or not there is race, and I, I want to ask this broadly and generally. Uh, because we're talking about uh, what is biological, we're talking about this dopamine in our brains. There are other assets and facets of life where we understand. Uh, that race is a factor when it comes to certain biological realities. Black people tend to be more susceptible, uh, for example, to sickle cell anemia. So when it comes to dopamine, broadly speaking, is there any sort of racial connection to any of this anywhere? So great question. There are definitely racial differences in terms of what drug certain communities are consuming Mm -hmm. and what drug they're getting addicted to. What's not clear is whether it's a genetic inborn phenomenon or whether it's really a socio-cultural phenomenon. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if you look at the crack cocaine epidemic of the 1990s, that mainly targeted inner-city black folk. Now, is that because blacks have some kind of you know, genetic predisposition to be getting addicted to crack cocaine? Probably not. Mm-hmm. What it has to do with is just that that was the drug that was marketed to them, that was readily available, that was cheap. Uh, And so, you know, again, access being one of the biggest risk factors. More broadly, what we do know about sort of the racial elements, and this is a really important story, Mm -hmm. is that culturally and as a society, we look at addiction differently depending on which group is struggling with it. Uh, so again, mm-hmm, yeah, so, mm-hmm. so, and this is really important. So getting back to, you know, the crack cocaine epidemic of the 1990s, because it primarily targeted black people, we said, oh, that's a cultural problem, that's a moral problem. But when the opioid epidemic of the last two decades primarily targeted middle-class white people, Ah, then we said, oh, now this is a disease, right? This is a a disease. They can't help it. They need treatment. Now, let me just say, we now embrace the disease model of addiction Mm -hmm. for all comers. But, of course, that's, you know, frankly, an, an openly racist 
phenomenon, right? Mm -hmm. That in one group it would be considered a cultural moral problem, in another group it would be considered a disease. And you see this again and again. And and also, you know, vis-a-vis the opioid epidemic, because doctors tend to assume that their black and brown patients are more likely to misuse and get addicted to prescription opioids, in the early aughts, a black person who went to see a doctor for pain would be less likely to be prescribed an opioid than a white person because of racist inferences mm-hmm. the doctor would make. And this is, there's evidence to document mm-hmm. this. There are studies. And as a result, ironically, black and brown people were relatively protected from opioid addiction mm-hmm. in the early 2000s. But, it, it, it is, but isn't that the ultimate irony? Uh, we'll continue when we come forward, but that for me is the ultimate irony. What Dr. Lemke just said is a powerful, powerful point. That, re- that requires some, some unpacking. Um, the, the irony is that when black folk did drugs, when the crack epidemic was, crack epidemic was, running, was running wild, nobody cared about it. When all the good white folk got addicted to opioids, now it's front page news everywhere. You got White House conferences and councils being established. Everybody's concerned about the opioid crisis when it hits white people, but nobody cared about the crack epidemic when it hit black people. And yet, the irony is this, to her point, when black and brown folk went to get opioids for their pain in the early 80s, they were denied that drug, those drugs. Think about that for a second. Dr. Anna Limke right now on Tavis Smiling. This is getting good. Tabby Smiley. Smiley continues when we come forward. 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 Rooting for everybody black. Everybody black. black. More of Tabby Smiley coming your way right now. Right now. Right All right, now. Dr. Anna Lemke, uh, author of the book Dopamine Nation, the New York Times bestseller. I think I got that question framed now in a way that might make some sense to you. I think what I was trying. Well, I think what I was trying to ask you was this, and and it it might have been better for me to have asked you for a definition of drug of choice, the phrase that you use. We've been talking about, and and, and here's why. Because I assume that when I do anything that my body likes or responds to, then that dopamine is released. Um, That doesn't necessarily mean that that thing is my drug of choice. Does that make sense now? Yeah. So so let me just say, stepping stepping back for a moment, thinking about drug of choice. Mm -hmm. In general, intoxicants release a lot of dopamine in all of our brains, Mm -hmm. right? So things that are intoxicating for one person uh, tend to be intoxicating uh, for another person. But it's not always the case, and people have preferences. Like some people just really prefer the way alcohol makes them feel. Others prefer the way cannabis makes them feel. Others prefer romance novels or chocolate or what have you, Mm -hmm. video games. Um, And some people will have a paradoxically aversive response. Like some people will take opioids and it just makes them nauseated and feel sick and have headaches and they wouldn't return to that drug. So when we're talking about drug of choice, we are talking about among many reinforcing substances and behaviors, this is the particular one that just scratches that itch. And that given a buffet of many reinforcers, I would choose. Like, I would choose that, right? That makes sense. I get it now. I get it now. Because, again, my point was uh, to my colleagues, if, if you smoke weed, I assume weed makes sure everybody feels a certain way. Uh, everybody feels good when they smoke weed, I guess. Uh, I never smoke weed, but if, I guess those who do, you feel good when you do it. But I, I don't know that that necessarily means it's your drug of choice just because dopamine responds to it any more than 
I like chocolate. I'm, I'm sure I get a release from that, but I'm not sure that's my drug. I wouldn't call chocolate my drug of choice, but I, I take your point. When we come forward... Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. You're yeah. absolutely right. So most people who would smoke weed would find it somewhat reinforcing, but not everybody. Not everybody. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, when we come forward, our remaining moments, um, this, uh, I've been getting all kind of uh, stuff to ask Dr. Limke about. The time is so limited. But here's a great question. Does Dr. Limke have advice for a six-year-old boy named Cillian who's listening right now about watching too much YouTube at his age. He thinks Dr. Lemke is wrong. Uh, I said it's not good for him. Uh, and I told him that she's a famous scientist, so you should listen to her. We'll get an answer for Cillian when we come forward on uh, Tavis Smiley. More of Tavis Smiley when we come forward. More honesty than you can handle. More empowerment than you can imagine. You're tuned in to Tavis Smiley. Smiley. Dr. Lemke, your book is so powerful, you got six-year-olds listening to this conversation. So uh, 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 Cillian and his father are in a conversation right now, and Cillian is saying, uh, Cillian is saying that he believes that Dr. Lemke is wrong, uh, he, that he's not, watching, he's not watching too many YouTube videos at his age, age six. Uh, he and his dad are into it right now. They need you to, uh, to, to referee this thing. So what say you? Oh, I love it. Okay, so Cillian, here's what I would have you pay attention to. Pay attention to how you feel when you're watching the YouTube video and then have you, how you feel right after you stop. Because I think what you would be able to do then is sense your own dopamine. When you're watching that YouTube video, all these feel-good chemicals are going on in your brain. But as soon as you stop watching, you're going into withdrawal and your feel-good chemicals are going way, way, way down. And that is the come down from that experience. And that doesn't feel good, and that suggests that the YouTube videos are actually not good for your brain. And compare that, Cillian, to how you feel when your dad asks you to help him with a chore and you really don't want to do it, but you do it, and then afterwards when you and your dad have done it together, how good you feel after you did that hard thing. So just think about that, because if we spend all of our time watching YouTube videos what we're really doing is making ourselves sadder, more hopeless, and not feeling good at all about ourselves after the fact. There you go, Cillian. There's your answer. Um, and I thank Dr. Lemke uh, for, for, for offering it. I've got about mm, two minutes left here, and I want to close on this. Uh, again, a question I could have asked much earlier in our dialogue, Dr. Lemke. Um, but if you can stop it, and this goes to the, I asked you earlier about the technical definition of drug of choice. Now, a technical definition of of addiction we could have started here right with the, what addiction really is because if you can stop it is it really an addiction i asked that i have a friend of mine and i could give personal examples if i had time but i have a friend of mine who has been a cigar smoker for years and literally every so often he will stop smoking cigars for months at a time to make sure that he is controlling it and it is not controlling him. I could offer, again, personal examples of, of the same sort of situation, not with cigars, but I want to make sure that I'm controlling the things around me that they are not controlling me. So if you can stop it, is it an addiction? Okay, great question. So addiction broadly defined is the continued compulsive use of a substance or behavior despite harm to self and or others. Now, we know that smoking anything is harmful for us, but at the same time, you could argue that occasional use of a cigar might be okay. But I think it is not true that just because you can stop for a period of time means that you're not addicted. Mm. Because I know lots of people with addiction who are able to stop and who use that as a rationale for not being addicted. 
But the, the key is when they go back to using their drug of choice, can they really use in moderation? Mm. Or do they find themselves immediately ramping up to unhealthy use? Yeah. That's really the difference. Her name is Dr. Anna Limke, and she is absolutely brilliant. <laughs> as uh, you can, thank you. As you, you. as you can tell. Uh, she's a New York Times bestselling author. She's written about the opioid crisis, now about dopamine. This book is called Dopamine Nation, uh, where she decodes the science of desire and explains how to find balance in our lives in this modern age of hyperindulgence. Dr. Limke, I enjoyed this immensely. Thank you for your time. All the best to you. Welcome. Thank you. We'll talk politics with the former White House Chief of Staff when we come forward on Tavis Smiley.